This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Read the tweets, hosts. Read the tweets. Uh, Dan Murphy. This is from Bruce Boudreaux. His comments on, uh, well, his thoughts on Jim Rutherford's comments in that interview with Dan and Sat. Quote, it's my 47th year and I've seen a lot of things. Just added to the book I'll never write. Thomas Trance tweeting out, listen, I'm not going to get into an argument over whether we do or whether we don't play with enough structure, said Bruce Boudreaux. We play as hard as we can, as well as we can, and we lay it all out on the line every night. One more from Boudreaux, tweeted by Thomas Trance. Boudreaux said he can't get into the minds of the Canucks players, but hopes that the team is, quote, angered by the commentary about their play and works to prove, quote, everybody wrong. And this from Bo Horvat. I think our details are stronger this year after a full training camp with Bruce and having more familiarity with his systems. It's a story that will not stop. With this, uh, we go to Thomas Trance for comment, uh, co-host of Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and, of course, from The Athletic as well. How are you today, Thomas? Oh, I'm doing well, Jeff. It was a this fun is, one at the rink today. The, I would imagine so. It was a fun one last night watching a uh, Vancouver Canucks hockey Twitter meltdown. And everybody <laughs> yeah, else we came, do that well. came along. And listen, man, everyone came along for the ride as well as we're watching this and listening to this and saying, are we going to go through this, you know, once every couple of weeks between Jim Rutherford and Bruce Boudreaux? We understand the Vancouver Canucks don't want to pay three coaches all at the same time, but does that mean that the current head coach has to endure this every time Jim Rutherford uh, is asked about his team? First of all, before we get to today, quick thought on what we heard last night with uh, with Dan and Sats and Jim Rutherford just dropping bomb after bomb after bomb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think my reaction was a little more circumspect just because, you know, I think I had a sense of how the organization was processing and dealing with the, the disappointing first 12 games that they've endured. Um, you know, I, I think there's been a fair bit of questions about whether the club's playing in a structured enough way. I think there's questions about whether or not, you know, it's easy to evaluate some of these players given that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess I wasn't surprised, or at least I wasn't as surprised as the market and the hockey world in general. So I, I almost... You know, I saw the comments while I was belly up at a bar watching McDavid versus Ovechkin and the <laughs> Islanders come back against the Calgary Flames, yeah. thinking to myself, like, wow, this product is in such a good spot. I love watching hockey. I get in the Uber to come home, and I'm just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I better listen to this. I listened to it, and I almost was – I almost was. it's like it was overhyped for me. You know, I was like, oh, this isn't as uh, as pointed as I thought. And then, of course, you get to speculating, like, what's he trying to do? Right. What's what's Rutherford trying to do? Because Rutherford has been around. Right. Rutherford knows what he's doing. He's deliberate. Um, You know, I think he was honest. First of all, I think it was honest and frank. Right. I I do think that it was just candid more than anything. But, you know, obviously, when you make those that type of commentary right before your club goes east, right, right before you play in Ottawa, Montreal and Toronto, you know, you know, there's there's a point to it. And I've, I've. Uh, There's a lot of different sort of political reasons why you'd make this commentary, but uh, what I sort of keep coming back to, what I find the most compelling is almost the simplest explanation. Um, You know, one thing hockey guys of all stripes do really well, just as a general character trait, right? They they probe opponents opponents for weaknesses. Mm -hmm. That's what hockey players do. That's what hockey lifers do. And often in managerial positions, one thing they'll do is they'll test people. Right? Do they, they like to test people. They, they like to get a reaction. Uh, it's sort of a, a standard modus operandi, and I know that Rutherford manages that way internally. Uh, so I'm sure it's a, a, an innate thing in his character. If you're Rutherford right now, right, what do you want from this team? You want something extreme. Like the worst thing is to limp along being mm-hmm. 500 from right. now to the end of the season, right? Finish with what? 79 to 85 points and pick 12. That's the worst possible outcome. At this point, what you want is either the team to respond significantly and go on a run that gets them back into the playoff mix or really, really lose badly (laughs) and to to the point where you can start trading pieces and tanking the season and getting one of those top seven guys in this uh, loaded 2023 draft class. I think this is, you know, what's the simplest explanation here for me? Mm. I think Rutherford was just throwing a gauntlet down, testing this group, see how they react. 
make some decisions based off of it, based on where you're at in the standings and what you've learned from the group based on their reaction to the commentary and the furor that then surrounds it, uh, you know, two weeks from now. I, I sort of, that, that to me is what I'm guessing. And obviously this is just speculation. I can't get it in Rutherford's mind. But that to me would be the simplest explanation for why we heard what we heard on Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver Monday night. So the, the, the one thing that I was, as, as I'm listening to this thing, I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I'm a Vancouver Canucks player, what's going through my mind? Because I'm going to be asked about this. Like, you mm-hmm. don't do an interview without knowing that your players are going to be asked about this. And it almost seemed as if, you know, Rutherford put them in that, in a spot where each player now is going to have to, you know, choose their fighter. Are you going to be Team Rutherford or are you going to be Team Boudreaux? You know, no player wants to come out and speak negatively about, you know, the guy that holds the purse strings and decides their future, whether they're playing in Vancouver, Abbotsford, or somewhere else come trade deadline. And then you also don't want to go against your coach who you have a more intimate day-to-day relationship with. I'm listening to this and I'm like, man, Rutherford's put these guys in an impossible situation because it'll be impossible to defend one without offending the other. Did you see it that way? Well, you know what it almost reminded me of a little bit was, do you remember the Yandel scratch talk before the season, the first season with the Florida Panthers? Yes, Um, of course. And, you know, everyone thought it was brutal. Everyone was like, what is going on? Like, why would they do that to a guy like Keith, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, for a group that hadn't had an atmosphere of accountability, right, and it's hard to manufacture down in Florida versus Vancouver, uh, as I know pretty well, right? Like, it's a very different environment. Right. Um, you know, it was certainly a way of turning the focus on and the screws on uh, the performance of indiv- individual players. And by the time the Panthers got off to a hot start and were, you know, 115-point team, yeah. and it was clear by October, no one was talking about it anymore, right? I-, I mean, I think the fact is is that there's no way out of this for the players. They're in an impossible situation if the losses continue. But they'll be in an impossible situation if the losses continue anyway. Right now, the only way out is to is to perform, and if you don't perform, there's going to be significant changes. And I, I just think this sort of underlines that in red ink. Mm-hmm. You know, one one of the things that Dan Riccio asked about was, you know, uh, at at what point, you know, does the season become essentially? And I'm paraphrasing Dan here. At what point does this season become about next season? Like there is a mm-hmm. point where it's like, okay, hold on a second here, let's. You know, forget all this stuff about the playoff push and the pace we have to play at, and is it a 115-point pace, and can we sustain that? It's, like <laughs> right. at, at a certain point, you just stop, and it becomes about next season. And then the question becomes, and I asked Elliot this a second ago, and I'll ask you the same thing. Who are the sacred cows on this roster? Because Rutherford yeah. indicated that, you know, made an indication that, you know, I may next season have to move someone that I wouldn't have considered moving this past off season to which I think we all wonder who are the sacred cows here? I mean, in my opinion, Jeff, in my opinion, this is me talking, not me reporting anything. I think there can be zero untouchables. That's my view. I I mean, you look at this team, right? They are positioned like one of those teams that's been contending for the last five years, Mm -hmm. except they've only made the playoffs once in those five years. And that wasn't even over a full season. They played their way in uh, as a result of the pandemic, right? Uh, This is a group that hasn't accomplished much. And when you look across sort of the roster and, and not just the roster, but like the overall holdings of the organization from a hockey perspective, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of cap space coming and not a lot of cap flexibility coming. Their only meaningful expiring contract this year is Bo Horvat, who's due a raise and who you're not better without, right? Um, you don't have cost certainty with the two players who have performed the best for this team this season in Bo Horvat, who's expiring this year, and then yeah. Elias Pettersson, who's expiring the next year. This is one of the thinnest prospect pipelines in the sport, right? Like very much up yep. there with the Penguins, the Bruins, some of the teams that have really been going for it year after year for the better part of a decade. Uh, That's the Canucks' company in terms of what you can add to this roster in-house in the years to come. Uh, That's a bad mix, right? Like, no no cap space, no prospects, not even your full arsenal of draft picks, and no cost certainty on your most important players. I mean, at what point do you need to create the space to improve the team over the long haul? Right. Not, not, not in the year or two, but, but further out. And, you know, I don't know if we're 
at a point where, sorry, I do know, we're not at a point yet where the organization's prepared to think the way I am. It's a lot harder for them to think that way than it is for me. But, you know, I, I don't think we're far off, right? I mean, if this season is lost in the first month, which it pretty much will be if they don't turn it around pretty quickly over the next five games, like this road trip's crucial. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're already at a point where you need to go at a hundred point pace for the last 70 games just to get to 94 points, which might not even be mm, enough. I don't know about that. In, I don't know about that Western number. Conference. Yeah. Well, it's 93.2 is the historic bar in the Western conference since 2014, since this playoff format was adopted. But we all saw it was 98 points last year yeah. and the West's looking pretty good. Like the West, there's a lot of teams like Dallas and Vegas that we maybe thought were bubble teams before the season that are looking pretty good. Like now it looks like your competition is what Winnipeg, who's a top 10 team by point percentage to open yeah. the season. And, uh, and Nashville, who's a, you know, pretty doing pretty well. I mean, it's the Kings who are top 10 team by point percentage. They've got what? Seven wins already. Uh, Canucks have three. I mean, they've put themselves in a hole. It's going to be a long road back. And if you don't beat Ottawa tonight, if you don't beat Montreal the next night, you know, then you're looking at like this is the this is the next seven games that the Canucks have on their schedule after the Ottawa Montreal back to back. It's Toronto, it's Boston, second leg of a back to back. It's Buffalo, then it's uh, Vegas, L.A., Colorado, Vegas again. Like that's it right there. That that seven games is basically it. Mm-hmm. You can't lose, you can't drop three points uh, in the next 48 hours, and then go into that seven game stretch and come out with your playoff hopes intact. Not when you started like this. So, you know, it, it's kind of now or never. Yeah. And I don't, think that's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's on the eve of this stretch that Rutherford, you know, poked the beehive, as it were. Let me, uh, we've got about two and a half minutes here. Let, let me ask mm-hmm. one that probably deserves more time for a more thorough answer, but here I go because I'm sloppy. Um, coming out of the lockout in 205, we talked a lot about players needing to learn how to play the game a new way. And with a salary cap, what comes along with that is managers need to learn how to manage in a whole different way. And one of the things that right. I think we've all noticed is the managers that understand that cap space is a thing mm-hmm. tend to do well. And the ones that say, I don't want to give away a player for nothing, not realizing that that nothing is actually something, i.e. cap space, tend to not do well. How does Vancouver yeah. and Jim Rutherford who's, you know, as a manager, you know, pre-salary cap and post-salary, how does Rutherford, to your, uh, to your uh, knowledge, view cap space? And is he willing to, quote-unquote, lose trades to get there? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they have been to this point. I think that's been part of the issue. But you look at the work in Pittsburgh and Carolina, I mean, it, it seems notable that Rutherford won the first cup in Carolina of the cap era, right? Yep. Is that right? That is 2006, beat Edmonton, seven so, games. So, I mean, that was the first cup of the cap era. And then obviously we know what happened in Pittsburgh. So, you know, there's enough of a track record there that I I can't exactly pound the table and and say he doesn't understand it. Like, I think he does. I do think there's been um, a sense that this market or this team in particular has lost so many deals that that at some point you have to reverse the idea that, you know, every GM's eyes get wide when Vancouver calls. Uh, every agent's eyes get wide when Vancouver calls. I think that was probably, I think that's probably part of uh, an underpinning reluctance to to go out and make you know the Vancouver version of the Jeff Skinner trade, right? right. Which was a huge L for Carolina, except that Carolina is way better positioned than Buffalo as a result of it. Yeah. Or the Trocheck deal, where Florida loses that takes a bath on that trade, but keeps getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I think there's been a reluctance to do that for sure. And I think they're, we're probably getting pretty close to the point where the, the club can no longer afford to be reticent about making, you know, pulling the trigger on those types of moves. I, I just don't know how you get better without clearing the books, without, mm. you know, sending out some of the bloat on this roster. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things, too. Like, I, I think about J.T. Miller. And one thing I wrote right after they did the yeah. J.T. Miller deal was, is this the right player at the wrong time for this team? Right. Miller had a great impact in Vancouver when he first arrived and at 5 million was like a perfect complimentary piece for this player. But once he becomes 29 and, and is paid to be a signature piece, right. does it still fit? Right. It's no longer about just getting the right pieces. It's about getting the right pieces at the right time for teams. Something we saw with guys like Gaudreau and Coleman, for example, in Tampa Bay. Sure. And, you know, that's sort of one thing when, when I sort of think about 
the the mistake uh, or or the things that I view as mistakes from this past offseason, paying McKay of 4.75, right player for this team. He adds a dynamic they desperately needed. But was it the right time in his career for this club to add Excellent. him? That, to me, is an open question. Excellent points, uh, as always. And uh, and we thank Jim Rutherford for giving us our first hour. And uh, I think you and Jamie <laughs> might, wa- might want to extend a thank you to Rutherford for your show later on today as well. Yeah, I will. Uh, thanks, Trans, for you the best, pal. You'll be good. Uh, be well. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. Right, it's Thomas Trance uh, from Canucks Talk on 650 alongside Jamie Dodd and also The Athletic. Coming up in hour two, Paul Patsko and Sean Mitten, authors of When Canada Shut Down. But joining me next, Kevin Woodley will convince you, and I mean convince you, that Francois Lair belongs in the hall. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Glad to have you aboard, either across the Sportsnet Radio Network or if you're watching us on Sportsnet 360 or Sportsnet Now. Thank you. Coming up in Hour 2, if you are uh, watching the program, I am holding up a an outstanding book. When Canada Shut Down. 72 Amazing Untold Stories from a Canadian and Soviet Perspective. This is what makes this one fascinating. We've heard plenty and read plenty about 72, the Summit Series, which forever we will always be talking about. We've heard a lot of it from the Canadian point of view. Very rarely, if ever, have we heard anything from the other side and what it meant to them and what their stories were. And did it have the same gravity that it did here? And if so, was their game one our game eight? Right? Game eight was the one. Henderson scores all of it. Heroes are made. The Hall of Fame awaits or should await for some of those members. It became the stuff of legend in this country. But there is an argument, and many on the other side of the rink make it, that the real game winner was game one because that one served notice that the Soviets could play, could hang, and belonged in the same conversation as other hockey heavyweights, namely the heaviest heavyweight puncher, and that was, of course, Canada. So some great stories from both sides in this one, as documented by uh, Sean Mitten and Paul Patsku, Paul and Alex Braverman as well, we should point out, uh, as an author of this book. And there's some great historians there and some fantastic uh, stories. So we'll get into that. And I got a couple of myself I want to share as well that aren't in the book. Because uh, you probably could have done, I don't know, 200 amazing untold stories. Um, there's actually one that I want to ask him about, about a significant person from Team Canada, not a player. And the theory that he was actually a spy. Dun, 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 dun. I've heard that one for years. We'll see if it's actually true. Who knows if it's true? Uh, so look forward to that conversation with Paul and Sean coming up at the bottom of the hour. Meanwhile, um, I swear that all my text exchanges with Kevin Woodley should just be shows uh, because they're so interesting. Uh, he's one of the most interesting people in hockey. Uh, you read him at NHL.com and In Goal Magazine. He is the one and only Kevin Woodley he was here to make a Hall of Fame case uh, for someone. And, and Kevin, first of all, welcome once again to the program. Second of all, I'm convinced you and I should never text. Uh, we should just we should just talk on the air because the conversations with you are so fascinating. And the most recent one that we had was about Francois Allaire. And should Francois Allaire be in the Hockey Hall of Fame? Before we get there, how are you, Kevin? I know around this time of year you start to think about goalies that should be in the Hall and Maybe you have a sneaky case you want to make for Lauren Shabbat, for example. Uh, but how are you doing around the Hall of Fame every year? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy this year because they're putting a goalie in. Um, <laughs> and I'm happy it was first ballot. I'm, and I'm more than a little biased because I got to obviously know and, and be around Roberto a lot here in Vancouver. Um, I am quite glad. I hear you're, you're on television right now. I'm glad that I'm not because I didn't put my tooth in. I discovered uh, this <laughs> summer that uh, slap shots off the mask can actually, we've talked before about the smell of burning rubber when, yep. when, when pucks hit the mask, they can also cost you front teeth. And I've, I've since discovered that I'm not the only one, Craig Anderson, 
I think Mackenzie Blackwood's lost four. So uh, I, I didn't realize that. I thought I was safe in that mask. Evidently, I'm not, and evidently the the, uh, the NHL guys aren't either. So I'm learning something every year as well. I wish this one wasn't firsthand. But other than that, I am good. Uh, do you wear a mouth guard with your uh, underneath your mask? I don't. I, after this, I, I realize I probably should have, but I also don't wear a dangler, so I'm not the brightest uh, whoa, whoa, when it comes whoa. to personal protection. You don't wear the dangler? Don't wear the dangler. Can't see down in it. Don't like it. It kind of. I know you and Darren Millard is on me all the time on our show about this. Come on, man! Like I, I get it for NHL guys. You know, you sacrifice some safety for performance, but these guys are making millions of dollars, and this is a career choice. And with all due respect, Kevin, you're 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 not. (laughs) You don't think there's a future in this for me at forty nine? Well, so so here's my story, okay? Because I have a similar one. Because for the longest time. I never wore uh, a cage or even a visor in men's league. I was that guy. Stupid, right? So this would have been 2004. I'm playing men's league, and I don't know why, but for some reason, uh, I go down to block a shot. First of all, why are you blocking shots in men's league, stupid you know, hero? You're that guy. Oh, I, was, I was that guy. And Sean Cullen, the comedian, okay, I was playing against a team that he was on, and he rips one right off my face, okay? And, like, my jersey looks like I just spilled, like, a bottle of Merlot on it. Um, thankfully, I didn't lose any teeth. It caught me right ab- up above my teeth, but right below my nose. So I've got, like, 35 stitches inside my nose, outside my nose. My lip is all split. I'm just a mess. Um, side story to that, they tried to freeze it to do the stitches. It didn't take. And so... <laughs> You'll love this one. Anyone listening in Vancouver will probably love this. I was going to say, it's, almost, it's like breakfast so, time still here in Vancouver. So I like, Sorry, like I, some people having a late breakfast but, or early lunch that are a little there's, queasy. There's a, there's a funny uh, psychedelic drug joke attached to it here, though, which really isn't a joke. It actually happened to me. So they take me to, to do like 35 stitches into surgery, and they're explaining it to me. And they say, now we're going to, instead of instead of the regular painkiller, we're going to give you ketamine. And I say, you're giving me special K? And the doctor says, uh, we don't call it that here in the hospital, sir. <laughs> we refer to it by its clinical name of, of ketamine, but I but I digress. So I've been that guy, and now I put on the cage because, listen, I got a responsibility. I can't look like a like Frankenstein on the air. Like, I can't look mangled like this. So I, I don't like it, but I do wear the full cage now. So, Kevin, put on the dangler. I have a really, really nice, thickly padded neck guard. I'm good. Your mother and I are very concerned about you, Kevin. Your mother and I are very concerned about you. Um, all right. Francois Allaire. Back to Frankie, who should be in the Hall of Fame. In the words of Jean-Sebastien Jaguer, who is admittedly biased, it is a no-brainer. Okay. In the words of Roberto Luongo, the mo- who is going in this weekend, the most important person I've had playing hockey in my whole life. Wouldn't be where I am without him. Yeah. Much- he had that much of effect on me growing up as a young teenager learning to play the position, as he did on pretty much all the goalies so, outside of Marty Berger that came out of Quebec during that era. Okay, I want to get there. So one, one thing, and we saw this perhaps most famously when Marc Messier went in, and he took part of his speech and made the case for Glenn Anderson. Okay, like took part of it and said, you know, thank you for having me in the, the one thrilled and honored to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame, et cetera, et cetera, and then went on to talk about why Glenn Anderson should be in. Do you think that Roberto Luongo parks a little bit of time to make the case for Francois there? I Oh, that's a good question. Um, I texted back and forth with Roberto about this conversation today a little bit, um, but didn't ask that question. I think knowing Roberto, um, yeah, that's interesting. I think certainly if he's asked in the media and, and availability around his entry, mm-hmm. he will go to bat hard because um, I know he believes in this as much as anyone who worked with Francois does. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Like we got to get into all the things that Francois meant to the position beyond just the guys he tutored and, um, and worked with both in the NHL and his teenagers. Cause there's a ton. It's not just the goalies and the success it had. He changed the way the position and therefore the game yes. is played. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know if it'll be in the speech. I, that's a good question. We'll have to wait and see. I wish I'd asked Roberto yesterday, but I do know that if he's asked uh, outside of the speech, he will sure. be pretty passionate about the, you know, the the need to get uh, to get goalie coaches in general. Like Francois should be the first. There are others. I mean, Mitch Korn, 
um, you know, the success he's had, all the different guys he's worked with, but then also look around the league. Like how many goalie coaches in the NHL today or in the NHL over the past 10 years are disciples of Mitch Korn? Like how many other people has he impacted within the position, both playing it and um, coaching it, that wouldn't wouldn't be at the highest level? And how many people have they impacted as a result mm-hmm. of their exposure and experiences with Mitch Korn? And, and, and Francois Lair has similar arguments. And that's, you know, like, that's why there's a builder's category. Like mm-hmm. people that fundamentally change the game and the position, and those guys are at the top of that list. So I don't know any other position in any other sport that has changed as profoundly. And mind you, it took you guys 100 years to get there. Thanks for catching up. I don't know. There's I'll any, see you any, forwards 20 years later starting to finally <laughs> learn a few things, too, about how well, to approach the offseason. Well, they're, they're learning how to shoot now is really what they're doing. Mean, yeah, I'm, it used to I'm, be bigger, stronger, faster every summer. Now they're actually working on skills, something goalies have been doing for two yeah. decades. Elaine Vigneault, catching up. Elaine Vigneault famously saying, oh, you want to score more goals? Learn how to shoot better. Don't shrink the pads. That's lazy. Learn how to shoot better. And guys are starting to catch, starting to, to catch up now. Um but but back to uh, back to Francois there here. So it, it it took a long time to get there. But I don't know any position that has changed as profoundly as a position of hockey goaltender, goaler, goalie, whatever you want to call them, however you want to refer to them. What was it like? Describe this barbaric time for goaltenders before Francois Allaire. This this radiant vision. We look at an azure sky of deep summer, and out of it comes Francois Allaire to save us all from the barbarians that were the bad goaltenders. Describe the landscape pre-Francois Allaire. See, I can't because I didn't. I wasn't part of that landscape. So it's mostly through the words of others and talking to others about you know, and that sort of goes to Allaire starting with a an, as an assistant with Sherbrooke Canadians in the AHL in 1984. And, and basically bringing this modern technical approach to the position. And most people associate it with the butterfly and law. And, you know, like we've heard the stories over the years about other coaches, you know, wondering why he's going to his knees and um, suggesting it wasn't the way that things should be done. Um, But that's just like that. Like there's the butterfly and there are others that butterfly like back to Glenn Hall before that. Yes. And Tony Esposito. Tony Esposito too. But they they dropped it. It was a safe selection. The mechanic, like the, we talk about the way the position changed, the ability to move out of the butterfly, proper leg recover, recovery, butterfly slides, the ability to move around on your knees, like that's where it evolved through a layer and through wah and moved on to to this massive like change in the landscape that you see now. And you know, some of that was equipment related. And that, there's another part that I'm not sure people realize a layer was involved with. Um, he worked, you know, hand in hand uh, through a contract at the time with CCM, the, the Lefebvre's, Michelle and Patrick Lefebvre, um, who now work, work with True. Uh, and I, actually, I, I guess I should say owned by True. Their factory is owned by True. So they work for True. Um, but, but positionally and in terms of the equipment that actually worked with the goaltender and was designed to move with the butterfly to facilitate these movements an ability to com- connect moments and scoring chances in games without having to get up to your feet and move. Like, all these things also evolved around equipment. And he had a very active voice, like, hands-on role in modifying and updating that equipment. Now, hey, some of it, um, the NHL had to put the horse back in the barn in terms of some of the innovations that Alaire said, but as, uh, that Alaire was a big part of. But as Jaguar said, like, like yeah okay like he had a, he, like he had a huge influence on equipment but as as Alaire said like maybe some of that isn't things that the NHL likes now but yeah. you wouldn't punish Jacques Lemaire because he invented the trap right like he changed the game um, and the NHL had to adapt with some rules to sort of take away some of the innovations again that were within the old rules that he created but back to like things like pads that rotated and slid like he was part of that conversation gear that worked with a goaltender that nobody was really having before. Mm-hmm. And again, another way that Allaire sort of led the way and changed the game, revolutionized not just goaltending, but as a result, how we have to try and score on goaltenders, the game of hockey. And the other thing, because I don't want to forget this one, because this is a big, big one. The only other guy that had been in the league to that point, it was right around the same time, maybe a couple of years before, that was in a role of goalie coach that hadn't played in the NHL. Because there were goalie coaches before them, but they were all been there, done that, guys, that you, you leaned on for advice. Nobody broke the game down technically the way these guys did. Uh, and that was Warren Strelo and then Francois Lair. 
And up till that point, like, like you didn't even consider getting a job in the NHL as a goalie coach unless you played in the NHL. You were just a sounding board. Like I said, been there, done that advice. And now, you know, like he was the pioneer that led the way to that. Now, more than half the goalie coaches in the league never played the position at the highest level. There are some, and they're excellent at what they do because they, they blend both. Um, but you know, I talk about guys like, like Mitch Korn and look at the impact he's had on the game. And first thing he, he'll tell you, and, and again, this is back when he was allowed to talk to us before he started working for the Islanders, mm-hmm. but he thanked Francois Lair for paving the way and opening the doors that gave people like himself and others the opportunity to work in the NHL. Like, think of the impact. Like, these, those are two guys that should be the first two in the Hall of Fame. And one points to the other is the only reason he got a chance at the job. So um, beyond just the three cups, the three Vesnas with Waugh, the pioneering, uh, inspiring an entire generation of, of goaltenders from Quebec, changing the way goalies all over the world played, changing the way we look at the position and break it down technically almost to the degree of a golf swing now. Like when we look at the mechanics and the slow motion video, like that all started with the lair. But he also led sort of the ability for others to break into the league with a similar mindset and a similar approach. We got away from, from been there, done that guys who had played, like he really did change so many different aspects of the game. Mm-hmm. And you talk about scoring and that's bigger. Francois Lair gave the NHL the opportunity to have more goals years ago. He developed a net with posts that had more of an edge to them as opposed rounded. And he did the math because a lot of what he did was based on the math. And he figured that two thirds of the pucks that went off posts could become goals instead of post and out. They would be post and in mm. if you reshaped the way the posts, you know, were sort of structured. And he presented that to him. I can't remember. I think it was around the oh four oh five lockout. Like there's a, for all the rap he takes on, um, you know, equipment and, and finding ways to 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 get right to the maximum legal limits of the old rules. Uh, he also gave them an opportunity to increase goal scoring. So, like, I just think there are so many aspects that this guy touched, and it touched so many goalies for an entire generation and continues to through his work with the Panthers. And it's just, like I said, ranting a bit, but it's a no-brainer. No, and the, uh, I keep going. he's got to go in. So there's a lot I want to pick up on there. There's a, there's a few things. Okay, so one, around that time when you're talking about the post, that's when there was, I mean, we all remember the, the, the Shanahan Summit, uh, which is not unlike the Art Ross Summit from the the mid twenties when you know goaltending uh, was the what was king and a lot of games were ending in scoreless ties and needed to juice the offense and I think it was like half of the games in the NHL were ending in ties and so they had you know what later became known as you know the uh, the Art Ross Summit later the, the Shanahan Summit but um, if you look historically at two hundred four or five right around the Shanahan Summit a lot of people were coming up with ideas whether it was um, Alaire's idea of the posts. I like that, by the way. There was the uh, famously the Larry Quinn Nets in in Buffalo were another one as well. So there were all these ideas that were floating around. Um, a couple of historical notes as well. You mentioned, you know, with the butterfly, whether it was Glenn Hall, and we'll throw Tony Esposito into that mix as well. Not that they, not that they use that tactically all the time to your points, but these were the first times that we saw these things done. Um, Jacques Lemaire, you mentioned with the trap. Hap Day was using the trap, you know, decades before uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs, I think, en route to a couple of Stanley Cups before. So it wasn't as if, you know, things happened all in a vacuum here. And, and this is really, you know, Kevin, in a lot of ways, this is kind of the story of, of how do you write history? Because where do you begin? Everything has context to it. It's hard to say, okay, now this one event really began here when even that backstory goes back decades. And to the conversation about Francois Lair, because you're right, great innovator, popularizer of a lot of these things that had whispers in history, where does Allaire, where do Allaire's influences lie? Like, where does it really begin for Francois Lair? Because I'm not so sure that he just woke up one morning and had these, you know, uh, Eureka, all of a sudden I've discovered these, you know, these different ways to play the position what are his influences? Like, where do we go backwards on Francois Allaire historically here? Oh, well, that's a question I'm going to have to ask him. And I'm trying to remember whether I did ask him, because when we had episode 100 of the Ingo Radio podcast, we had him on as, as our guest, like to sort of celebrate the anniversary. And I got to believe I was smart enough to ask that question, Jeff, but I can't remember the answer. No problem. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pass on, on where, where his influences came from, but like there was a different way of approaching it, right? Like the mm-hmm. thought process of, 
know, I talked about math, like looking how looking at how goals are scored and how we can prevent that, right? So I don't know where the inspiration for that came from, but there was a different approach. And that's where, you know, I think the as much as, yes, others did the butterfly, I think he's sort of the godfather of the modern butterfly and the movements that have evolved from it. Um, the concept of thinking about the way we play the position based on that math, looking at how goals are scored. Like, and we've seen this now in the NHL with all the scoring that's going on right now. Like, it results from people looking at how goals are created. Like, how do you beat goaltenders? Like, and, and so five years ago, the Washington Capitals win the Stanley Cup using lateral passes, like understanding in, in part directly because of their work with ClearSight Analytics and their goalie coach, yeah. Scott Murray. Um, this is how you score in the NHL. In the five years since, um, the amount of goals scored off low slot lines, so passes across the middle of the ice below the bottom hash mark, have gone up 41% because teams are trying to score that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they, that's, again, a change that initiates with understanding how we score goals uh, and understanding how goaltenders move and what gives them the biggest fit. Well, Allaire sort of based the premises of how he was instructing on first understanding how goals are going in at how most goals are going in at the time and how do we prevent it, right? So it's a different, whatever the inspirations were for it, it was a different way of thinking about the position, how to teach it, how to coach it, and to approach it with, you know, technical breakdown, some of it based on math, some of it based on body mechanics that really hadn't been considered before. It was just all kind of flow and feel to that point. So I believe that the first time a team employed a a goalie coach, and I don't know how much actual teaching this person did, but I think technically this was the first time a team had hired someone as a goalie coach. Correct me if I'm wrong, if if, if you know here, this is one of the historians. Uh, It would have been Dennis DeJordi of the Detroit Red Wings, and he was brought in, I believe, we talked a lot about Jim Rutherford today, uh, to work with Jim Rutherford, uh, who was then goaltender with the uh, the Detroit Red Wings. DeJordi had played with the Red Wings a I think at least once or, or maybe twice uh, previous. So that would have been, to my knowledge and my belief, the first time an NHL team had hired someone as a quote-unquote goalie coach or a goalie consultant, someone used just to work with the goaltenders. It hits a whole new, to your point, a whole new peak um, with, uh, with Francois Allaire, who revolutionizes the position. But in order to revolutionize the position... Someone had to buy in. Someone had to be, okay, you know what? I'll be proof of concept. Who was that guy or who were those guys? Like, who do, well, we, we, point, to get... who do we point to and say, that's the proof of concept for Francois Lair? Well, I, so I'm guessing, like, I'm wondering how much it had to do with Strelo, who was the first, only one before him sort of to come from that side of things. Um, and obviously would have worked with the Miracle on Ice team in 1980 and Herb Brooks. Yep. I don't know how much that led to, like, I mean, it all starts with Sherbrooke in the AHL, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. where he gets that first opportunity. Um, but I don't know who gave him that opportunity. I don't know who stuck their neck out and decided that, for all the chatter and, and, and ridicule, including by other coaches on the ice for as often as, as Patrick was going down to make saves, that that was worth it because they believed, uh, you know, whether it was in the math or in the vision of Francois Lair, that this was, this was the way to do things. I don't have that answer. We, again, yeah. we probably, we need to get Francois on with you because he's got all these answers. <laughs> um, I look more at just, you know, I arrive on the scene later and talk to all the goalies that came up through him, you know, the, the Martin Birons. And a lot of them, a lot of them, you know, the one thing that sort of towards the end of his career and the way things ended in Toronto, there were stigmas attached in terms of the style he coached and being rigid. And certainly whoever decided that, that Vesa Toscala would be a good fit with Francois Lair and probably should have given their head a shake. That was destined to fail, I think, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But you talk to Jaguar, you talk to Marty Biron never saw himself as a Francois Lair goalie. And yet, he's, he, you ask him if he would have ever gotten to where he was without the time he spent at the camps uh, with Francois there. And not just here in Canada, because we've talked a lot about the Quebec influence, but Switzerland. Like, Marty talks about going to teach the camp that Allaire ran annually in Switzerland mm-hmm. as a turning point for him, because he was understanding that it wasn't, this wasn't just about the butterfly and rigid mechanics. This is about 
thinking about the position and working on your craft within the position in a completely different way, the way he broke it down. And now look at internationally, like those Swiss camps gave us Martin Gerber, Cristobal Huey, Jonas Hiller. Mm. Um, I think David Abisher as well. Like look at the number of guys and the influence that he had in Europe. I know he did camps in Sweden, um, sort of prior to to their sort of breakout as a goalie nation. Like, Francois Lair has touched the position not just in Quebec, not just in the National Hockey League, uh, reinventing sort of how it's played and therefore how you try and score on goalies playing it that way, um, but overseas as well. Uh, you know, I know he's done work um, in, in, the, in the, I believe, the Czech Republic and Slovakia over the years in the summers, and you talk to the coaches and the influence that he continues to have through some of those camps over the years. Like, he just touches on so many people in the position. Um, you know, like I said, I just, to me, like, this is and, – and listen, I know that the Hockey Hall sort of keeps its process somewhat secret. I was able to ask one of the – at the time – voting members on who gets in, why he wasn't in. And the answer I got was, oh, he's an assistant coach. We don't put assistant coaches in the Hall of Fame. And I was kind of floored by that. I think they need to consider it if that's still the way things are going at that level, if they just don't even consider it because he's not a head coach. Um, Because to me, all those things, I'm like, that is the definition of builder, right? Like he built the way that like the modern game is played and, and the way the position is played. Dude, I'm I'm, I'm 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 bought. No, listen, I'm bought and paid for on this one. I I agree. I think I think Alaire. I don't think this is just like it. Like first of all, it is the most unique position in hockey. Period. It's and a they have sport. they have their they have their own they have their own coaches. This is not just like being another assistant I'm coach. Assistant. Okay, you handle the PK. Uh, no, this isn't like that. This is handling. Hey, listen. The other thing too is if they're gonna pay goalie coaches half of what they pay other assistants, at least give them the Hall of Fame for crying out loud. <laughs> That's another topic for another day. You know, it's it sounds more and more here like uh like you're talking me in, and maybe you're talking yourself into uh you know what Francois Allaire needs more than anything else is a stump speech, maybe at the Hockey Hall of Fame, maybe by one of the most entertaining and, you know, eloquent goaltenders we've ever seen. Maybe just someone who's going into the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, in the not too distant I'll send him my notes. Okay, really quick, really quickly here before I wrap up with you. Uh, every time I ask about goalie injuries these days uh, to someone in the goaltending fraternity, I always get the same text back, and that is, it's the skates. As we see goaltending injuries, should we just say, oh, it's the skates, Kevin? Ooh, um... <sighs> I don't want to know. I don't want to say it's just the skates. It's not just the skates. Um, I talked about the lateral plays. Yep. Uh, like, I mean, just the amount of East-West that a goalie has to go through. Like, first of all, as much as we just praise the, uh, the, the sort of revolution of the modern butterfly, the reality is the human, bo- human body was not designed to do a butterfly. <laughs> Internal rotation of the hips. Um, you know, like you make fun of me for not wearing a dangler, but the reality is that the stupidest move I could make is be a goalie because the human body was not designed for the hip to internally rotate the way goaltending acid to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of it. And the stress that puts on the body is immense and reverse VH and the stress that puts on ankles and therefore up the chain to the knees, to the hips. Uh, you look at the lateral movements. You look at how Sam, Samsonov's knee folds underneath him because he gets caught on what a lateral movement, um, you know, for sure there is an element of how the game's played and how fast it is east-west and the demands that that puts on a goaltender to keep up. Um, So that's part of it. I have heard the skate thing. Uh, I've heard it from guys who retired shortly after switching um, to, you know, some of the one-piece skates that, you know, basically the theory here, Jeff, is Mm -hmm. no lost energy transfer, right? So the the tighter the better that fit is in the skate and more connected that that tight fit that wrap around fit is to the blade the more precise i can be in my movement there's no give because the reality of traditional skates is you know you've got um a boot and a holder and a blade and even between the boot and the holder, what's it held together with? Rivets. Like, there's a little give there, right? Like, as much as we think of a rivet as being pretty fixed, there's a little bit of give there. And by creating these one-piece skates with no give, like, literally, I know goalies that change their sharpening by, like, one or two. Like, they would go from three-eighths to a half 
which is significant because they felt they had so much more control hmm. over their edges in these skates. Like these are all positives, right? Like, holy smokes, I don't even need my hollow to be as deep because I just I am on my edge and I have access to my edge instantly and it's amazing and I move better. The problem with no lost energy transfer is it's all got to go somewhere. And so whether it's banging into a post, popping in a reverse BH, or even just the start and stop of an aggressive T-push, that energy moves up the chain. And if you are locked in through the ankles yeah. and there's no dorsiflexion, not, a, not, not much, and that's why we see a lot of guys now undoing the top of the skates. We've got the Bauer skates that are actually like ski boots, the Bauer Connect. Yep. We've got a half a dozen guys in the show in that now, uh, actually writing about that this week um, to try and give some of that flex back. But if you don't have it, where does that energy go? It goes up the chain. Straight and where's the chain in a butterfly? Knees and hips. And so, you know, I have talked to guys that, you know, never had hip problems and within two years of switching. And they can't say for sure, but they felt like the hips hurt. And then within two years of switching, they retired and having surgery. So um, there are some questions that are finally being asked. To be honest with you, Jeff, I've been having this conversation about three, four years now with some guys. Mm-hmm. And I think it's finally making its way into the mainstream about, for all we get out of these skates, are we adding risk? But I, but to blame it on all the injuries? No, man, this game's just too damn fast east-west for goalies to keep up without some part of their body giving out. Yeah, it's like whenever people talk to me about, uh, you know, uh, fighting and concussions. Uh, I have one doctor friend of mine that says, your problem isn't fighting, your problem is hockey. That's the problem with injuries. That's what causes them. Uh, you're the best, Kevin, as always. And uh, we cross our fingers. Like seeing Francois Lair get in one day, I mean, it takes someone to nominate him and people stand up for him. And uh, we'll see where this one goes. But it would be nice to see Lair make it into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And knowing uh, that it was you that started the campaign makes it even sweeter. Kevin, thanks as always, pal. You're the best. Thanks, Jeff. Kevin Woodley from NHL.com and In Goal Magazine making the case for Francois Lair and why he should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, hit a quick break. We're back to talk about this outstanding book. I love this one. I've already picked it up three or four times just to go back and read some of the stories. Uh, 72 Amazing Untold Stories from a Canadian and Soviet Perspective. The book is called When Canada Shut Down. Uh, authors Sean Mitten and Paul Patsku joins me in moments. Merrick Show continues. Great daily gambling advice from Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert in the fan morning shows Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, so uh, indulge me here. This is going to be a real treat. Uh, Welcome back to the program, Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. I'm holding up one of the finest offerings you will read this year. Just when you thought you'd read everything about 1972 and the Summit Series, when Canada Shut Down comes along, 72 amazing untold stories from a Canadian and Soviet perspective. Sean Mitten and Paul Patsku uh, along with me here. Gentlemen, thanks so much for stopping by today. Really, really appreciate you coming in uh, in studio to talk about this outstanding book. And, And first of all, I know you wanted to cap it at 72 for the obvious, say it's about 1972, so we're gonna do 72 untold stories. Uh, but how many could you have done, do you think? Like, how, how did you edit it down to 72? How many could you have done, Sean? I would say that I've written 80. And what was interesting during the process is, you know, we had an outline of stories that we had, yeah. and then new stories would come in. So, for example, like towards the end while we were editing, yeah. uh, we had an opportunity to interview Ann Peel, who was one of the, the 11-year-old girl who was interviewed by Bill Good Jr. in mm-hmm. Game 5, and... Because of Paul, because he had access to all the intermissions from game one to game nine. Paul's the best. He's the best. He is the best. <laughs> Paul is the best. That we saw an 11-year-old girl who yeah. is the daughter of a Canadian um, um, person in Moscow, an ambassador, and, and she was there for two years, and uh, we tracked her down through the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame, and uh, we interviewed her, and yeah. she had never seen in the 50 years the video of her being interviewed. Really? Yeah. So it was really special because... Well, well, that's the advantage that we had. We had access to all the intermissions, post-game, pre-game, radio broadcasts, Bob Cole, the intermissions. So, yeah, with 72 stories, you could have doubled that because there were so many things you'd find as you're working on the book, going yeah. through the... And he's not the only one that we found to show them the video of them on TV. Mm-hmm. It was... Um, 
Who are the other the other couple? The castles. Yeah. Uh, yep. So you, if you read the the story about yep. the diary, the Carol yeah, oh, Castle yeah. diary, as I'm reading through it, she's saying my husband Bill was in Game Six behind Johnny Esau. So we went back to the videos that uh, Paul had, and we found Bill Castle, <laughs> and they had never seen the videos before, so we shared that with them as well, which was incredible. That's got to be a real delight. And, you know, we were just saying um, before I came on air, and I, I called someone at the Carolina Hurricanes to ask if there's any relationship. So the uh, – and there's stories like this, folks, that are, all, that, are, that are all throughout this book. So Alexei Kachetkov was a stick boy for the Soviets in 1972, and – any hockey fan right now will hear the name Kochetkov and go, oh, Carolina Hurricanes, you know, the third string goalie, you know, goaltender of the future for the Carolina Hurricanes. So I, I sent someone that I know in the Hurricanes organization a note saying, is there any relation between these two? And he said, let me get back to you. Sean, you walked in here and asked you the same question. And you said profoundly and definitively. No, they were not related, although they were connected because after the session stick boy, he went on to become the GM of the Soviet national team on the junior side. Now, and up through the ranks came who else but Piotr Kochekov. It's so amazing. And Alexei was kind enough to share a photo with the two of them. And obviously the first question I said is, you know, Alexei, are you guys related? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, a unique name. And, uh, you know, sure enough, they were not related, but yeah. uh, we may see him in the pros soon. So like many uh, who are obsessed with hockey and specifically 72 or any international uh, tournament or in this case challenge series uh, between two countries, uh, we all have our pet favorite stories. Like I love, there's a, there's a great story between game one and game two. Canada loses game one, game two is at Maple Leaf Gardens and they're essentially begging Bobby or Bobby, can you do it? Can you try the leg out? Can you do it? And he, um, he's, they, they have him skate at Maple Leaf Gardens uh, this is after a Toronto Marlies tryout, which would have been a minor midget age at that point. So one of the goaltenders stays back as Bobby Orr takes shots on him for about 30 hours. And I think Pete Mahovlich went out there as, uh, as, as well to take shots. And that goaltender we now know as a singer and guitarist from Blue Rodeo, and that's Greg Keeler. Right. So, like, there's that's one of my pet favorite 1972 little-known stories that I love to share at cocktail parties. Uh, do you guys have a favorite story from the book? I mean, there are so many great ones, and I, I do want to mention Aggie Koklovich here in a couple of moments. But, Paul, well, we'll start well, with it, you. What's your, what's your favorite one, story? I mean, one? I know they're all like children. Pick your own. Pick yeah, your favorite the, the one here. The I, I like is... See, the title is called When Canada Shut Down, and you have to illustrate that was really true. Now, if you weren't around at the time, you, you really don't know. Yeah. But um, a friend of mine, I, I keep telling this story because I like it so much. He's a, <laughs> He was a milkman in British Columbia. Yeah. And the, the time difference with the game was on about early in the morning there, and uh, he's mad because he wants to see the game. But he has to del deliver milk. Remember, this is 1972. Sure. And uh, so he goes on the porch. He hears the game on inside. He says, well, puts the milk, milk down. He's, he's going to knock on the door. Nobody answers. He just walks in. He sits down beside a few strangers, watches Henderson <laughs> score the goal, winning goal. He gets up, goes back to his milk route. That's Canada really did shut down all across the country. Yeah. Uh, that's one of my stories. But there's so many. I mean... We found a lot of new stuff, like I said, because of the video and yeah. the outtakes that no one else has seen. Mm -hmm. And I did work on the four-part documentary, yes. too. So there's a lot of information from there that we got. And um, like I said, it's all new stuff. You have a favorite, Sean? Yeah, I will say um, a favorite kind of memory or situation. And, you know, when we're putting the book together, we have a vision of things that we'd like to accomplish. So, for example, like, we were very fortunate to get the forward written by Paul Henderson yeah. and Vladislav Tretiak. But one of the things we wanted to accomplish is be able to pass these stories down to younger generations. So one of the things what we thought was, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could interview Paul Henderson's grandson and get his perspective, what it's like to be the, you know, the grandson of a, of a legend mm -hmm. and vice versa on the other side, if we could talk to uh, Tretiak's grandson. And sure enough, we were able to interview both parties but not only do that, but we had a Zoom call, them meeting each other for the first time. And I don't know if you recall back uh, during the Olympics, just after that, there was a COVID outbreak yep. and, and they, they basically stopped the KHL. Mm -hmm. And Max Trechiak, who's I think about 24 years old today, and he plays in the KHL, um, he wasn't playing. So we were fortunate through Alex Braverman to get an interview with him because his two-year-old daughter was sleeping in the afternoons. He did the Zoom call out in his car. 
<laughs> and so we got 30 minutes with him to talk about his experience and, and memories of yeah. being the grandson of Tretiak and how he became a goalie. And then later on, we brought in Alton McDermott, who was the grandson of Paul Henderson, and they got to just chat and get to know each other. And it was pretty cool because just two guys who were passionate about hockey. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the great stories that you share in the book, and the book is called When Canada Shut Down, uh, one of the great stories is uh, the scouting of uh, the, the Soviets and the weakness was, oh, the goaltending is, is weak and it's, you know, Trechak's getting lit up. Canada won't have anything to worry about here with that goaltender. And as you, you point out in the book, you know, there was, uh, you know, Trechak was getting married and was there a famous bachelor party and was, you know, was the goaltender overserved the night before the game and did that impact? And, uh, and, and, and therefore, you know, it sort of surprised, I think, uh, Team Canada in, in game one. Um, one of the things that I'm always curious about, and I know my perspective on it. Now, I was too young. Too, I mean, I was three years, four years old. No excuse. Uh, three years old. I know it's sad <laughs> that not to have any. 76 was my first one, Paul. Okay. I mean, seven, yeah. 76 was my my first Ziller. big tournament. But uh, that's right. Siller scores on, on Zorilla. Um, so my perspective on it, since I was aware that 72 in the Summit Series was a thing, it's evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how it's evolved for you two. And I'm also curious in your conversations with people from the Soviet side, I very strongly get a sense of Canada celebrates game eight. That was the win, but the Soviets celebrate game one. Like the Russian side celebrates game one for them. That was the win because it showed that they could compete against the greatest hockey players in the world the players from Canada. Is that accurate? Their, their, their games, their game eight was game one. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the word I would say right off the bat is validation. Yeah. Um, Because if you can imagine being the head of the, the, on the Russian side of the hockey, the Russians um, basically tied how they were perceived with winning in sports. Mm -hmm. So if they went into a situation that was not favorable, it would look bad on them. And so um, Sergei Pavlov was one who signed the contract. And in the book, we actually interviewed his, his daughter. Two-page contract, right? Two-page like, contract. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, and, and so, you know, there was a big concern that if, if things went sideways, they weren't expecting to win the series to win eight games. They just wanted to be competitive to say, we are as good as the NHL stars in, in mm-hmm. Team Canada. And so the funny thing was uh, what was happening at the same time was the Olympics in Germany. Mm-hmm. So he didn't watch the first games in Canada. He was in uh, basically a, a TV studio in Germany watching the feed. Yeah. And, of course, Canada takes a 2 nothing lead five minutes into the game, and he's starting to think, I'm oh. going to lose my job and I'm going to Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, of course, things turned out better for him because they were well better conditioned and they won 7-3. to three. Mm-hmm. And that was a sense of relief for him that he signed a two-page agreement that was gonna, it was going to play out for him. And sure enough, it was a competitive series. So it was, it was fascinating how that began. Paul? Yeah, well, we're fortunate we had Alex Braverman um, part of this book because he had access to a lot of different people in Russia, formerly Soviet Union, and he arranged for Tretiak, Mikhailov, and Yakushev to come on our Hockey Time Machine show. That's a great, I I love that broadcast. Thanks, uh, And (laughs) Every Thursday, let's go. That's right. And so we got to see them, and they're in Moscow, and Mm -hmm. we're, we're doing a show with them. And, and you see them as different now. You see them as human. You don't. They're not enemies anymore. They're they're laughing and and joking like we are. They're the same as we are. So mm-hmm. that was. And, and they told us a lot of stuff about Game One. Okay, because that was like you said, the most important thing to them. After Game One, when they did win, well, things did change because they now they do want, they do want to win the whole series. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that at the beginning, but uh, yeah, we're lucky we had Alex contact so many different. Um, people from Russia to tell us their stories. Aggie Kuklovich. Now, I got to know Aggie a little bit through Bill Waters, uh, who, you know, through Alan Eagleson was was a part of this and other international tournaments as well. And I got to talk to Aggie uh, a number of different times. Uh, Aggie was a flight attendant with Air Canada. Uh, Aggie was the uh, the translator or one of the translators. You can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on this one. One of the translators or the main translator uh, for the tournament as well. And there was always some speculation that he was also a spy <laughs> at the same time, which is deliciously. A now, spy now, for who? Uh, well, that is one of the questions yeah. I was going to ask yeah. you, Paul. Who is he spying for? Well, now, Aggie's no longer with us. Yeah, I know. Now, now, Aggie's I know. no longer um, with us. 
Well, he was a hockey player too. Yes, he was Rangers, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he, him, and Eagleson were very close. Mm-hmm. And he, he, yeah, I don't want to say too much. Okay, is this <laughs> for another book? Is this for another book, Paul? <laughs> well, let's put it this way: um, when the players got together to get for their try to get the pension money back, yes, they all met at um, a Ramada Inn. Bobby Orr, everybody was there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're all mad at Eagleson. And who else shows up but Aggie? Yeah. You know, and they thought, well, he's not there to help the players. He's there yeah. to help Eagleson. But I don't know. It's all speculation. But he, he, there were a lot of spies going on at that time, you know. Like, there is the undercurrent through all of this in, in 72 because, you know, of course, this is culture versus culture, country versus country, system versus system player, but like at, at every single level. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've heard the Canadian players say, so, you know, we assume that all of our rooms were bugged at this. We've, we've heard all of these stories. Uh, for So I think it would be folly not to imagine realistically that mm-hmm. there was some element of that undercurrent during this international tournament. Yeah, you don't know what to believe. Um, yeah, the steaks were, and and the beer were stolen, so they say. <laughs> um, but as Trechak explained to us on that Hockey Time Machine show, he said, well, the the chefs and the cooks there, they, they never saw such large steaks. They said, no human could eat this much, so we're going to chop them in half. They don't need the whole thing. They were meant for Esposito. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So there's always explanations. Now, the, the beer, well, their beer... Our beer was better than theirs, and uh, I mean, 1972, the the Cold War, and me just going there must have been incredible. That's why talking to the people who yeah. were actually there, um, Canadians that went over there, that that's um, really enlightening to us. Things that happened. How is your um, how are your feelings about 72 changed throughout the years as hockey evolves, as we all grow up and. You know, history is this wonderful thing of, you know, as as we go forward and, and look back, there's new context and, and new information and new perspective. This is about any event uh, in, in, in history for the purposes of this conversation, of course, 72. How has your thoughts on the um, uh, on the Challenge Series changed, Sean? We'll start with you. I think the first thing I think of is Canadian pride. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is there was 3,000 Canadians over there. And they had, uh, as, as Paul, you know, was part of the documentary, Peter Mahovlich really expressed how, how big a role they played uh, in that series. And we went back and looked at the videos or the interviews of, you know, Paul Henderson and Brad Park after, after the game was over because they were the players of the game. And, um, you know, they just kept on saying how proud they were to be Canadian. And the same thing, Harry Sinden said that, John Ferguson. There was such appreciation right. of, now we've been in Moscow for 10 days. That was pretty crazy. And we really appreciate how much Canada um, means to us. And that, to me, when I look back in Canadian history, I was trying to th- ask the question, like, where did Canadian pride first really show itself? And, and to me, I think the 72 series really showed that. Vimy Ridge is when it you know, was always said that that's when Canada became a country. Right? Mm-hmm. Vimy Ridge was, was, was the moment, and there have been other moments since. And I think that 72 was just such a great unification moment. Right. More than any, more than anything else, your your thoughts, Paul, on how this is, yeah, how this I, tournament has changed in your mind. E- emotion, because it was hatred back in '72 against mm-hmm. anything Soviet. Sure. Over the years, you you can't duplicate what happened in '72, so it's not as exciting or emotional as it was then. But getting back to the people who went over there, we had our alumni lunch a couple months ago, and Paul Henderson offered to come, and we had. Sean had brought in a bunch of people who actually were over there uh, watching the series, and they came to the lunch, and, and Paul Henderson says, I want to see the people who were over there. Let me talk to them. And that was oh, incredible. Wow. That meant more to him than anything. Wow. And in that documentary, when they interviewed Peter Mahovlich, he breaks down in tears. He said, we went to one, one without those fans cheering. So it makes a big difference. Listen, we're still talking about it because the effects are still being felt uh, all around it, whether it is the uh, the way the game is played, the way the game is coached, the way the game is thought of. Um, 
the way the game is presented, because I think that was the first time we saw rink board advertisements <laughs> uh, anywhere in the history of hockey, and now that's certainly commonplace, and now it's digital, and that's taken on a whole <laughs> new life of its own. Uh, Sean Paul, thanks so much, you two gentlemen, for uh, first of all, for this excellent offering, uh, which every hockey fan should have on his or her shelf, and thanks so much for coming in today. Yes, Paul? Yes, uh, we're going to be at the Sports Card Memorabilia Show on Friday and Saturday and Sunday as well. We're going to have the book there. Excellent. All three authors will be there to sign it. Yep. And uh, so drop by. Um, you know the booth number, Sean? Uh, I think well, it's 1512. It's in the autograph Best, best to wander around yes. those things. You know what? Yeah. I got uh, Road to Olympus, Anatoly Tarasov's book, for $2 wow. at that <laughs> event cool. about 10 or 15 years ago. So whenever you mention it, Paul, yeah. uh, warms my heart because my, my greatest spend of all time, $2 for Tarasov's so book. Thanks for having us. And, and, Jeff, I just want to say, if people can get the book at lulu.com, L-U-L-U. And thanks for having us today. It's been awesome. Perfect. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Merrick Show, back on the air tomorrow, noon Eastern, 9 Pacific. Thanks for joining me today.